First John chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Amen. May God speak to us through his word today. Well, good morning, everyone. 
Good morning, and let me add my welcome to Kevin's. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Johnny. Uh, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here, and it is great to have you uh, here with us this morning, whether you're uh, here regularly, whether this is the first time, or whether you're just visiting this morning. We do hope you feel very, very welcome uh, over the course of your time here. Uh, as Kevin's mentioned, we'll, we'll spend the next few minutes thinking about First John chapters 1 and a big bulk of chapter 2 together, um, which has already been ably read for us. Um, but before we, we do that and think about it together, let me lead us in prayer and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. John writes, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the scriptures, that they are the testimony of people who saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, life himself. And we ask now that as we study them together, we would have ears to hear that testimony and hearts to receive that life and walk in it. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I, I wonder if you've ever found yourself in the situation of having to persuade someone, perhaps a friend or a family member, that you have met someone famous or important in the flesh. Maybe you bumped into someone on the street one day, a, a musician or a sports person or a media personality, and you, you couldn't believe you were seeing them in real life. And it was so unbelievable, in fact, that when it came to persuading your friends that it had actually happened, they wanted proof. My own experience of that might sound fairly underwhelming to quite a number of you. When I was a little boy, I met the football manager, Craig Brown. You might know him as the man who managed Aberdeen for a while. When I met him, he was the, the, the coach of the Scottish national football team. And it was a genuine pinch-me moment to see the person whom I'd only seen on TV in real life. And I couldn't wait to get into school the next day to tell my friends that I'd met the Craig Brown. Only when I got into school and I told my friends, no one would believe me. And I'm sure you can imagine that was fairly galling at the time. But looking back, I can kind of understand why. Might not sound that outlandish to any of us in this room now that I'd met Craig Brown, but at the time I was claiming to know someone who was a pretty big deal. And when you're claiming that kind of thing to have met or to know someone of consequence, well, people understandably want proof. And for the people to whom John was first writing this letter of First John, that was just the kind of claim they were hearing. The claim from some people to know not a media personality or a sports person or an ex-football manager, but to know God. To be friends, to have fellowship with the God of the universe. And the problem John's readers are therefore wrestling with in our passage this morning is much like the one facing my school friends in the playground. How do we know whether we can trust that claim to have met someone of consequence, the God of the universe, how do we know we can trust that claim or not? 
Now, we began this series, as Kevin mentioned, in the letter of 1 John last Sunday morning. And we saw, if you were here, that 1 John is written to a church divided. So a number of people had left, it seems, and had decided to move on from the teaching of the apostles. And John is writing to those Christians who have remained, who have stuck with that teaching, and his main objective is to reassure them. Why do they need reassurance? Well, because the leavers hadn't just left. They also wanted to take some of those who've remained with them to persuade them to depart from the apostles' teaching too. And we're going to see more of that very strongly put next Sunday morning. But it is important we clock that wider background even this week because part of those who have left deception is to try and convince the remaining Christians that those leavers really know God. We've left you, they're saying, but we have a deep and a meaningful relationship with the God of the universe. We've got a better spiritual experience than you guys who've remained. Why bother staying where you are? John appears to be quoting them saying just that in our passage this morning, actually. Notice that with me. If you have uh, the text open in front of you, that would be a, a help to you and uh, to me, I suspect. First John chapter 1, verse 6 John writes, if we say we have fellowship with God, or as we read on chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, inference being, that is exactly what is being claimed by those who've left, that they have fellowship with God, that they know him personally. And John is reassuring those who've remained that just because somebody claims to have met with someone of consequence, claims to know God, claims to be walking with their maker, well, it doesn't mean that they necessarily are. Because, says John, when you really do know the God of the universe, that kind of relationship, it always leaves a trace. There is always proof. And so this morning, John will show us two proofs, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2, of what it looks like to really know God. There are a number of, of headings uh, on the screen behind me, or at least will be in a moment, please, Jonathan, uh, that will help us as we do that. Thank you very much. The first of which is that God is light, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, um, if you're part of our home group Bible study network here at Hebron, um, last week we met together for a study in the book of, of First Kings. And uh, the opening question in this week's study, the kind of icebreaker, if you like, for the evening, was this. What is God like? And I wonder how you would answer that question. What is God like? It's quite a tough question to answer with a blank sheet of paper in front of you in one sense. You might venture a number of, of different suggestions. God is powerful, you might say. Or perhaps that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Maybe you would land on the idea that God is kind, that God is gracious. 
Or perhaps you would take a step back from the question and say that actually the question is difficult to answer because God is beyond our full understanding as limited creatures. He is not limited in the ways in which we are. All of which answers would be true, but I wonder if you notice they aren't the answer that John gives to the question, what is God like? In 1 John 1 verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, says John, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all the word john chooses to describe god is light and that might not be the first word that springs to mind if you were to choose to describe him but it is a very helpful one and when you give some time to thinking about it it is also a really really wonderful one See, it sadly feels like an increasingly common thing to hear reports in news media of another figure of authority who has been caught or exposed as having abused the people who were under them, sometimes doing so for years without anyone being able to stop them. And whenever that situation becomes public, well, it's firstly often met with with great shock because it's been kept hidden for such a long time. But it is, whilst painful, often invariably a very good thing indeed that that kind of darkness, the darkness that's been lurking in the shadows often for years has been dragged out, sometimes kicking and screaming into the light. And there are two senses in which we might say it's been dragged out into the light. Firstly, we might say it's been dragged out into the light in order to convey a a sort of revelation That what was done in secret or in the dark is now out in the open, in the light. Or we might use that phrase to convey not revelation, but moral goodness. That that darkness, that evil is being exposed to moral goodness, shown up for what it is in the light. And that second way is the sense in which John says that God is light in 1 John 1 verse 5. It's an idea that conveys not just revelation, but goodness. Perfect, blinding, moral purity. The kind of purity in which verse 5, there is no darkness that isn't corruptible. That doesn't change depending on whether he's in public or in the private sector. The kind of purity that brings about the exposure of whatever is lurking in the dark. That is what God is like in everything he does and in everything he is. That's the message that John says he's proclaimed to this group of first century Christians. And I wonder if you can see how deeply attractive that message is. That there is an objective source of goodness and purity and rightness in the world. And that that objective source of goodness is the creator God. It's an attractive thing for our culture, I think. In a world in which people and situations often feel ethically murky. And where even people who might look morally upstanding can be very far from it. Well, God... The God of the Bible is perfectly morally upstanding. 
There is an objective goodness in the world, and it is him. But as well as telling us a lot about who God is and what he's like, the fact that God is light also leaves us with a fairly clear implication. See, remember, this unit is all about that claim to know God, to have fellowship with him, relationship with him. And if God is light, then if we are to know him, we are surely to live in the light too. John says as much, actually. Read with me from from verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If God is light, then for us to know him... Well, we have to be light too, says John. That logic hopefully makes sense. But I wonder if it might not feel like very good news to some of us. In fact, I wonder if, as Kevin read through the passage a few minutes ago, it might have made some of us feel, well, a bit wobbly. Because God's lightness means that he's morally pure. He's perfect. And so for us to live in the light is surely to to, to reach that same level of purity, isn't it? And frankly, that just seems impossible. Perhaps you feel absolutely inadequate against that perfect purity, that perfect light of God. There's no way that I can really know him, know this kind of God. And if that is how you felt as the passage was being read, or as I've been speaking over the past few minutes... Well, then that's kind of John's point. See, John's argument as we move on is that we can't be as pure as God. We don't have it in us. But that the sign that we are in the light is not that we are perfect, but that we know we are not. And we'll see that under our second heading. Knowing the God of light looks like acknowledging our darkness. Now, a number of years ago, there was a boom in uh, television programs about antiques and antique hunting. I'm not sure if, if all or any of them are still on the TV or not, if I'm honest. Uh, and I might have been the only one. Uh, but the main reason those programs were watchable uh, were the two moments of jeopardy in each antique as it was being evaluated. I, I, I do use the word jeopardy loosely. It was an antiques program, after all. But they did keep things interesting, at least. The biggest moment of jeopardy was finding out the value of the thing at the end. That's basically what kept you watching all the way to the end. But before that, the first moment of jeopardy in each evaluation, it was the antiques expert telling the owner of the antique whether it was the genuine article or whether it was a fake. There was occasionally that moment of heartbreak when the owner found that the map they had thought was a priceless antique had actually been bought in an HMV. And uh, that was very upsetting for them. But that was kind of why they'd taken the map to the experts in the first place. Because the experts knew what to look for. They knew how to spot a fake, what marks give away the fact that it isn't the real deal. And in 1 John chapter 1, John is functioning a little bit like one of those experts. Remember, he's writing to this church that's split. And those who've left haven't just left the church, they've departed from the apostles' message. But we'll see next week 
they seem to be teaching a sort of twisted version of that message. And all the while, they're claiming that they're in the right, while those who've remained are in the wrong. And so part of what John is looking to do in this chapter, a bit like an expert on the Antiques Roadshow, is to show his readers how you spot a fake, even if that fake might claim to be the real deal. And interestingly, and uh, reassuringly in fact, John says that one mark of a fake, of someone who isn't in relationship with God, is that they claim to be perfectly pure as God is pure. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If you don't know or acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you're in darkness, well, John would say, you don't know God. You might claim that you do, but you don't. Now, that hopefully goes some way towards explaining the situation John was writing into, but what might that kind of darkness look like today? Well, it might look like pretending that we are light, that we have our act together, morally speaking. We are as pure as God is. We'd never say it quite like that, of course, that's socially unacceptable, but well, we can pretend it, project a version of ourselves that, that never does anything wrong. And can I just say that that's even possible to find in churches, People look to try and keep up appearances by projecting a version of themselves they think people want to see. And we can even sometimes begin to believe our own hype. Perhaps more common in our culture, though, is not claiming that we are less dark than we really are, but claiming that God is less bright than he really is. That he isn't all that concerned with the darkness in the world or the darkness in people. Now, right now, some of the the moral pinch points in our culture are over issues of human sexuality and of gender. And uh, people are often very quick in our culture to affirm behaviors that God says are a rejection of his good design for us as people that are disobedient to him. Even when the Bible clearly calls something sin, it's not at all uncommon to hear this kind of thing. God didn't really mean it when he said that it isn't that big a deal in the grand scheme i mean god's kind god's a forgiving god he can't really have meant it when he called this particular behavior sinful and it isn't just in the area of of sexuality the same thing's been happening over different issues ever since the beginning remember the words spoken in the garden of eden did god really say and you see the thing is that god is good that he is kind, that he is gracious, that God is love. John will say that himself later in this letter. But the way in which that grace and that love shows itself or works itself out is not by ignoring darkness. It isn't by pretending that he doesn't mind when people disobey him. John would say that by suggesting he does, you're denying the grace of God. You're making him out to be a liar. 
That's a very serious thing, isn't it? One mark of someone who claims to know God but is actually living in the dark is that they claim to be without sin. So if that's the fake, well, what does the real deal look like? Well, the mark of someone who genuinely does know God, who is walking in the light, is not that they are perfectly light and pure in themselves. It's that they acknowledge their own darkness. 1 John 1 verse 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or chapter 2 verse 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. You see, the way in which a person who sins, who is not morally pure in and of themselves, can relate to a God who is perfectly pure in and of himself, is that God is gracious and kind, but that grace does not work itself out by him overlooking darkness or turning a blind eye to our rebellion against him. The grace of God works by him seeing our darkness at its very bleakest, knowing the inner recesses of my heart, never mind the stuff that comes tumbling out my mouth, and yet nonetheless sending his son Jesus to bear the consequences of it in himself. To be the propitiation is the word John uses. It's a long word. It really Think of it as satisfaction. That Jesus, in his perfect life, and in his death on the cross, he satisfied the good and right anger of a good and right God against all darkness within us. Now, I know that for some of us, that might not be an especially reassuring thing to hear. It might actually be a a shocking thing to hear, especially if you've never thought about it before. might never have considered that that you could even be in God's eyes in the dark. That you aren't morally together enough to really know him, to walk with him in relationship. But the Bible is crystal clear that this is what God is like. He is perfectly pure. He is light. And not only that, it says that that is not what we are like. We are impure. We harbor all kinds of darkness within us. And to be honest, if we are honest with ourselves, we know it's true. And it means that by ourselves, we cannot know the God of light. But there is a way. A way for sinful people who live in the dark to come near to the God of light. And it isn't by pretending that we're better than we are. It isn't by pretending he's less good than he is. It's only, verse 7, by the blood of Jesus, his son. And so the question that leaves you and I with this morning is whether we're going to keep pretending. Pretending that God isn't as concerned with purity as all that, that he isn't really light. Or pretending that we're much lighter than we really are. That we don't really sin. Do that, says John, and you're denying God. You're proving that you don't really know him. Instead, 
Will we do the only thing we really can do when faced with perfect blinding light? Will we acknowledge our own darkness? Will we come clean? And acknowledge that by rights we should not be able to know him at all. He should have no part with us. And yet ask him. Ask him to make you clean in his sight. Verse 7, to wash you. Chapter 2, verse 1, to advocate for you. He promises that if you ask, he will do it. Listen, you can know God. The God who made you. The God who made all things. And that is just mind-blowing. You can know the God of light himself. But you can only do it through Jesus. So that's the first sign, if you like, of walking in the light, of knowing the God of light. Not that we are morally perfect, but that we acknowledge we're not. We acknowledge our sin, our darkness, and receive his cleansing. But there is a a second sign of walking in the light that comes in chapter 2. We're going to unpack it more fully in a couple of weeks' time, so we won't spend as long on the second point as on the first. But we will spend a few minutes just thinking about chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. And we'll do that under the heading, Knowing the God of Light Looks Like Loving, Not Hating Other People Who Walk in the Light. Now just read with me, chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep... His commandments. Now, hold on a minute, Johnny. You just said the sign that someone knows God is that they admit they don't have it all together. And yet here we immediately lurch into John seeming to say that the real Christian is someone who perfectly obeys God and all his commandments. So which is it? Well, as we read on, we see that that, that John does narrow things a bit. He isn't talking about obedience to all of God's commandments in chapter 2. The commandment he's talking about particularly is the command to love. Chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So it isn't complete perfection he's looking for. It's just perfection in our love for one another. But even then... Even with that narrower definition of obedience, this might still sound fairly unsettling if you're a Christian. Because you know that you don't love other people as much as perhaps you should. I don't. And John seems to be suggesting that might mean you aren't walking in the light, that you don't really know God. Let me just say there are two things that make me think John isn't setting an impossibly high bar nor is he seesawing or flip-flopping between chapters 1 and 2, but instead he's still trying to reassure these Christians. Firstly, just notice with me the little poem that ends the unit. Read it with me again from verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. See, the point cannot be, if you don't love people a bit better, you obviously don't know God. Because look at all he's saying to the the church. He tells them they are forgiven, that they do know God, that they have overcome, that they know the Father. His clear intention is still to reassure, not to undermine. That's the first thing. And the second thing is how it is that John defines love in chapter 2. I wonder if you spotted that. Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light 
and hates his brother is still in darkness. Or verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Now, one of the the really wonderful parts of my job is that I often get a bit of a a front row seat at weddings, either because I'm speaking at them or conducting them. I'll be doing that a couple of times over the next couple of months. And one of the big themes that I'll pick up on as I speak is the theme of love, what it is and why it's such a wonderful thing. But I wonder if you think I should be taking inspiration from John's depiction of love in 1 John chapter 2, if that would be fitting for a wedding day. Dearly beloved, do you promise not to hate one another? That's how he seems to define love, isn't it? It's the absence of hate. Doesn't sound like he's expecting perfection, does it? It sounds like he's setting a pretty low bar, actually. And the reason for that is that he is not saying, here's how good you have to be in order to be in God's good books. Instead, I think he's giving us another feature to look for in the fake Christian. Those Christians who've departed from the apostles and trying to convince the remaining Christians to do the same. John's saying they're claiming to know God, claiming to have a better relationship with him than you do. But listen, you can tell that they don't. Why? Well, because they hate you. And people who really know God, they don't hate their brothers and sisters in Christ. They might not love perfectly, but they don't hate their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I wonder if you can see how, maybe in a roundabout way, that's a reassuring thing for the Christians who've remained. That those fake articles will tend to hate them. We touched on this a little bit last week, and we will do again in weeks to come. If you're a Christian, it, it, it may not always come as a huge surprise if, if people who don't follow Jesus give you a bit of grief for following Jesus. But it can be far more of a surprise when people who do claim to follow Jesus make life really difficult for Christians. A close friend of mine was part of a church situation in which a large group of people departed. And it wasn't over a secondary issue like the style of music or or, or the color of chairs in the church. It was over a primary issue of belief. And what was really confusing for that friend of mine after that group left was that they weren't just ambivalent towards him. They were overtly hostile. Tried to make life extremely difficult. And I wonder if you might have faced similar hostility perhaps from a friend who used to believe the same as you about the Christian faith, but now believes something very different indeed. And isn't just content to leave you be. Isn't even content to try and gently discuss and to persuade you they're right and that you should maybe think about things from their point of view, but is overtly hostile towards what you think. Now, I know that that can be a deeply unsetting, upsetting thing, I should say. And in fact, I know very well that it is for some people in this room a deeply upsetting thing, that that's exactly where you are right now. But whilst it is upsetting, it needn't be unsettling, says John. Don't be tempted to kowtow to it or to follow them, if you like. Because it's a mark of the fact that they don't actually know God at all. That they are so hostile towards you. 
Now, as we draw to a close and draw some of those threads together, just take a moment or two to think back on the idea we began with this morning. If you were to claim to someone that you knew not Craig Brown or a media personality or a sports person, but that you knew God, that you're in right relationship with the creator God of the universe, what kind of evidence would you point to? Or perhaps more to the point for some of us, when you're feeling a bit wobbly yourself, unsure of whether you really do know God rightly or not, what kind of evidence can you use to reassure yourself that you really do know him? Well, it all starts in verse 5, that our God is light, perfectly pure and good and right in all his ways. And you therefore can't know that God. You can't see that perfect light. And at the same time claim that you are perfectly pure in yourself. That you have no sin. You can't know the God of perfect light. And see how it shows up your own darkness. And at the same time hate other people who look dark like you. See knowing the God of light looks like acknowledging our darkness, our need to be made clean, and loving, not hating, other people who do the same. So listen, please do not be put off by people who will claim otherwise. He might even do so with great hostility towards you. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you've trusted in his death in your place, then please stick with him. He is our advocate, our rescuer. And through him, and through him only, you can, and you do, know the God of light. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful truths of First John that you are light, that there is no darkness in you at all, that we needn't doubt you or your character because you are perfect in all your ways. And yet we confess that we are not like that, that there is great darkness within us. We ask, Lord, that you would please continue to expose all within us that is not of you, And help us to take it all to the only place it can really be dealt with. The only place we can really know you. To the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we praise you that though we are not light like you are. That by doing just that. We can know fellowship. Eternal fellowship. Relationship with our creator God. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.